0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Casper, Wyoming, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Casper, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Casper. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Okay, I'm back. And now we're going to go over your financial independence. Specifically, what does it mean for you to be financially independent? And we want to look at this more than just sort of like generic concepts. We really want to dig into this a little bit. So, and then specifically what we'll do once you kind of get a gauge of what it means for you to be financially independent is does buying this property, remember, this is coaching for you to be able to buy a property in the next 90 days that moves you toward being more financially independent, toward your goal of financial independence while prices are high, interest rates are high, and rents are lagging. So does buying this property move you closer to financial independence? We need to look at what financial independence is mathematically for you. So let's define it so that we can answer this question. So this is financial independence. And I like to think of financial independence as having five parts. And if you want to simplify it even more, it's really three parts. And then one of them is really three things. Okay. So if you want to think about it that way. So what it is is number one, because we're talking primarily about real estate and rental real estate, it is the net positive cash flow from rental properties. That means you take all the income from your rental properties, the rent, and any other income you might have, minus all of your expenses, including vacancy principal and interest on the loan, taxes, insurance, private mortgage insurance if you've got PMI, maintenance, management, all of the expenses on the property get subtracted out. And whatever is left over net after all of that is what your income is that counts toward you being financially independent, okay? So that's net positive cash flow from rental properties. The second thing is, Any invested assets you have, not counting the real estate, we do not count the equity in the real estate twice. That already got counted when you had the, uh, the net positive cash flow from rental properties. So any other invested assets you have, things that you have invested in, things like stocks or bonds, or if you're doing hard money loans where you are the person lending the money, that is another asset that we consider to be invested assets. Things like that. You have invested assets times whatever your defined safe withdrawal rate is. So if you believe in the 4% rule, which is a rule that uh, was kind of made famous by the Trinity study, uh, where they talk about how, what percentage of the amount of assets you have invested in stocks and bonds uh, could you, in quote, safely withdraw from your portfolio and not likely run out of money. So what's the amount you could safely withdraw? It's a safe withdrawal rate. So some people will use 4%, some people will use 3%, some people use 5%, it's whatever you feel comfortable with. Um, As far as that number goes, but that's the number two source of money for financial independence so all other invested assets like stocks bonds or loans you have as a lender times your yearly safe withdrawal rate that's number two, then the other three are all different sources of passive income, and they are number one social security, so any social security that you're receiving. Any annuities, if you went and you bought an annuity, an annuity is money you give to an insurance company that they pay out. This is the layman's term, by the way, layman's definition. So any money you invest with an insurance company, uh, you you usually buy a lump sum amount, and then they pay you out a certain amount each year or each month um, based on how much you invested with them. Um, and usually it's for the life your lifetime, or you and your spouse's lifetime, or something complex like that. I'm not going to go into a ton of details, but that's number two source of passive income, annuities. And number three is pensions. So all five, again, net positive cash flow from rental properties, any invested assets you have times your safe withdrawal rate, and then the three source of passive income, Social Security, annuities, or pensions. The sum of all of those must exceed your expenses in order for you to be financially independent. So if you think about it, you say to yourself, "Okay, I'm living on two thousand a month, five thousand a month, ten thousand a month, hundred thousand dollars a month, whatever your expenses are for you to kind of support yourself and whatever lifestyle you've defined for yourself when you are financially independent, when you no longer have to work, if all of the sources of income, net positive cash flow, invested assets, time, safe withdrawal rate, all three sources of passive income, when that exceeds the amount of money you need to live on, then you are considered financially independent." Okay, so now that we know that. What we have to think about is what does that look like for us when we are retired, when we are financially independent, we stop working, what assets will we have in place? And I'll get to that here in a second on another slide, but that's where we're headed with this. We're going to want to say, does buying this property contribute toward those goals? Is it something, is the property I'm thinking about buying, do I want to hold onto that? Do I want to own that? at some point in the future where I am financially dependent? Or am I using it as like a intermediate short-term asset that I'm going to hold for a period of time and then I'm going to sell it off or I'm going to do a cash out refinance or I'm going to do something with it in order to use the proceeds, the return from that? Because it can affect what we focus on. If you're going to hold it long, long long-term and have it be providing net positive cash flow from your rental properties as your source of income, then having maximized your cash flow on that property is probably pretty important. But if you're really saying, look, I'm only going to hold this thing for one, two, three, four years, five years, until I actually sell it, then I'm going to take the proceeds and pay off other rental properties, I'm going to take the proceeds and I'm going to go buy annuities, I'm going to take the proceeds and I'm going to invest in stocks or bonds or whatever I'm going to do. If I'm going to do that, then maybe cash flow is not the most important thing you should be focusing on. And maybe buying a property at a discount getting a big chunk of equity and then focusing on properties that are likely to go up in value you know, some type of either forced depreciation or organic or natural appreciation the tendency for property values to kind of increase over time those can become much more important drivers of your overall return if you plan on selling it so really the thinking is we're talking about buying a property in the next 90 days that moves you toward financial independence that may be cash flow and I think for a lot of folks it is but not everybody. And so we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. A couple of clarifications on this financial independence concept that before we move on. I think I mentioned this a second ago, but equity in your properties or any equity you have in businesses is already accounted for in cash flow. So you can't double dip. You can't say, you know, I've got a million dollars in stocks and I've got a million dollars in equity in my properties and I'm getting $5,000 a month in positive cash flow. No. You can't use the equity in the properties. You're already counting that as the cash flow on the properties. So, in other words, another way of thinking about this is the cash flow you're getting on your properties is the return on equity. If you think about it that way, it's the return you're getting on the equity you have in your properties. Now, the million dollars you have in stocks or bonds or you know, some other type of investment, not the equity in your properties, that counts times your safe withdrawal rate. You can use that to kind of sum those up. You can't count the equity and properties or businesses, in my opinion, twice for your safe withdrawal rate. Okay. Any payments on loans you've made. So, if you're the lender, if you're being a hard money lender and people are coming to you and they're borrowing money from you and you're loaning them money so they can go buy fix and flips and you're getting six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 12, 15% return, whatever it is, 18% return on your money, then that is not, you can't count the 12% you're getting on that. You don't do it that way. You count the loans as part of your overall invested portfolio, and you use that safe withdrawal rate on that money. So, even if you're earning 10, 12, 15%, whatever it is, on making these hard money loans, you're still using the three, four, 5% safe withdrawal rate number um, in order to determine how that counts towards you being financially independent. Then the last kind of comment I have in here for clarification is dividends are also part of your invested assets. So like you can count those separately or in addition. That already counts as part of your overall return you're earning on that money in stock market or bonds or you know if you're not getting really dividends on bonds, you probably get interest payments, but you get the idea, okay? So those are some clarifications on that. Okay, so now that we've kind of talked about what the definition of financial independence is, I'm gonna step back and we're gonna talk about two different kind of parallel paths one is what I call phases of financial independence it kind of tells you what phase you're in on your journey to becoming fully financially independent and then I have stages and the stages I borrowed from uh I think it's um oh what is the name of the website I haven't haven't linked up here I'll tell you what it is in a second the phases of financial independence though is' sort of like my concept the other ones are ones we got from the internet and I'll show you where those are I think it's wallet burst if I'm not mistaken so Okay, so phase of financial independence. Financial independence, phase one. This is when you're working toward having the absolute minimum you need to consider yourself financially independent. If you say to yourself, okay, if everything got really, really ugly, and I had to quit my job because I just couldn't stand it anymore, or I lost my job, How much would I need in order to live at the bare minimum level? This is sort of like, you know, you're not doing all the vacations you want to do. This is sort of like, you know, just barely getting by with how much you need for food and clothing and insurance and taxes and all the other stuff you need. But just the bare minimum to kind of scrape by. That's minimal. Financial independence, what I might call the minimum target monthly income in retirement. That's sort of the way I think about it. It's like, how much at a minimum would you need monthly in order to live your kind of just scrape by? You know, what some people might call like lean fire, lean fire, lead financial independence, retire early. So phase one is when you're working toward having enough money where you would be financially independent with a minimum amount. So you're not, you're not there yet in phase one. You're working toward that. Phase two is you've achieved enough to have the minimum. So you've successfully achieved the minimum target monthly income and retirement. Enough assets between rent on you know the uh, net positive cash flow on all your rental properties and any invested assets, have safe withdrawal rate or any of the passive income sources, social security, pensions or annuities. The sum of all of those meets your minimum threshold. That's the point where you get to where you're like, okay, I could take a, a, a sigh of, of relief. And if something really bad happened, I have enough to kind of scrape by. Then you're in phase two. In phase two, you have the minimum amount, but you're working toward the ideal amount where you are comfortable with your financial independence. This is more like you have your ideal monthly income. You're able to do the traveling you want to do. You're able to you know, have the... The things you want to have and, and kind of go out to eat a few times or whatever it is that means the ideal means to you. So you're working toward ideal. You've achieved minimum. You're working toward ideal. That's phase two. Phase three is you've met your ideal number. You've achieved the ideal number where you have enough coming in where you are very comfortable. Some people might call that fat fire, where you're very, very comfortable and you have that, but you're working toward having a margin of safety. For your ideal lifestyle. Because if the stock market declined or real estate values and, and rents went down or, or expenses on the properties went up or vacancy went way up because you have another pandemic or something like that, you could actually dip below your ideal and not quite have enough. So in phase three, you've achieved your ideal, but we're working toward you having a margin of safety such that if the market goes against you, you don't have to retrench your lifestyle, you don't have to reduce your lifestyle. And then phase four is you have greater than two times your ideal target monthly income in retirement, making your ideal lifestyle resilient and safe and continuing to work toward leaving a legacy. In my opinion, and you can do whatever you want with your money, but in my opinion, you want to get to the point where you have two times your ideal. And then after that, you can give away anything you want above that but two times sets you up so that you are resilient and safe in case something happens and the market goes against you where you can still maintain your existing ideal lifestyle. Okay, so those are the phases. Phase one, you're working toward your minimum. Phase two, you've achieved your minimum. You're working toward your ideal. Phase three, you've actually achieved your ideal, but you're working toward becoming safe. And phase four, where you're working on leaving a legacy because you have two times your ideal coming in. Okay, so those are the phases of financial independence. You might hear me talk about those. So I wanted to go over them so that you kind of understand where we're coming from with that, with those concepts. Now, so Wallet Burst has their own kind of stages of financial independence, and you kind of will see these written around the internet. I don't know if they came up with this, but they did a really nice visual. And so I'll show you what it is. So these are the sort of like the stages or the milestones on your financial independence journey. So a lot of folks, they start off with negative net worth. They have more debts than they have assets. They've got student loans, or they, you know, they have negative equity in their property or whatever it is that they have there, they start off with negative net worth. So that's sort of the the, the baseline stage. Eventually you get back to zero net worth. So that's an achievement from having negative net worth, where your, your your liabilities are worth more than your assets is where you have negative net worth. Zero is where your assets and your liabilities are at least even and and that's kind of where you are. Some people will not have negative net worth. You know, they'll kind of not fall into the trap of having, um, you know, student loans or whatever it is coming out of college, and they'll start with zero net worth. So zero net worth is where you're break even. Then the next stage is where they have saved up an emergency fund. So not only do you have a zero net worth, but now you have a little bit of money set aside, whether that's $1,000 or $5,000 or $10,000 or six months, it's whatever you decide your emergency fund is, but that's the next stage in this uh, milestone on your financial independence journey. After that, you have Coast Fire. Coast Fire is where you have enough money set aside that if you didn't add another penny at all, you would be able to retire at whatever your ideal age is, whether that's you know, 55, 65, whatever your number is, okay? But when you're at Coast Fire, when you've achieved Coast Fire, you have enough assets, rental properties, stuff invested in stocks or bonds or whatever it is. You have the safe withdrawal rate, all the passive income stuff, all those combined, such that if you just let them grow. For the next 5, 10, 15, 20, whatever number of time it is until you're at your point where you want to be financially independent, if you just let the current assets you have grow, you would be financially independent. That's what coast fire is, because you can kind of coast into financial independence, retire early, based on the assets you already have, you don't need to save anymore It's another way of me saying that okay, so then you could just live off of whatever you have coming in from your job. So you no longer have to, you know, be working a really high end job in order to have all this income coming in. If you want to simplify your life and go work at someplace with less stress or that you would enjoy more, you know that you have enough assets so that if if you just spent the money you earned, the assets would eventually grow and they'd be able to provide you with financial independence. You're not spending any of the proceeds from your investments with Coast Fire, but if you just left them alone, they would eventually grow and, and lead you to financial independence. That's Coast Fire. Barista Fire is where you have some assets and combined with the amount of money you're getting from some of your investments, you can supplement it with a part-time job or a job that you know you really love doing that's not really a high income earning job or maybe it is high income it doesn't matter, but uh, you're doing some work and you have some assets, some of your financial independence assets that are storing off some money and you're living on some of those. So it's a combination of you're living on some of the investments and you're getting some from your job. That's barista fire. It's like you work at Starbucks part-time for health insurance and to get you know 20 hours a week or whatever it is you want to do there as an example. Okay, so that's barista fire. Lean fire is where you have enough that you could live that minimum target monthly income and retirement number, that that minimum number. So you're able to just scrape by. You have enough assets where you don't even need to work as a barista anymore, you could sort of get by. Then regular fire, sort of a you know arbitrary definition, but you're able to live and be financially independent there versus fat fire where you have more than enough where you can live your ideal lifestyle. So that's sort of the stages of financial independence or milestones on your financial independence journey. And in case you're wondering how the phases versus stages kind of overlap, phase one, remember, that's the one where we're working toward you becoming, uh, you having your minimal target monthly income and retirement. Excuse me. That really consists of having a negative net worth, having zero net worth, having an emergency fund, having Coast Fire, and being Barista Fire. So all of those consist of phase one for me. Okay, so this is the, the normal wording you might hear online, you know, have negative net worth or zero net worth or emergency fund or coast fire, of fire. That's really what I would refer to as phase one. You're working toward having that minimum or lean. Then phase two is you've achieved lean fire. So that's kind of where it is there. And you're working toward ideal fire. You're working toward fat fire. So phase two for me consists of lean fire and regular fire. Phase three consists of safe fire, which is what phase three is for me. That's fat fire in the normal kind of like nomenclature and fat fires when you have more than enough you're living your ideal lifestyle Um, and then I also throw in phase four there as well where you're working on leaving a legacy you have more than two times your ideal and it's much safer because the market can go down and you're not going to have to give up any of your ideal lifestyle in order to continue living at that level okay so those are the different phases and also different stages for financial independence okay so earlier. I talked about this idea of uh, the financial independence budget. You want to know, I think you want to know three things, okay? I think you want to know what your budget looks like now, what your expenses to live now are, and what your ability to save is now, what your financial independence budget looks like when you have just enough, that minimum target monthly income retirement in order to just scrape by. And then I think you also want to know what it would look like when you hit your ideal. So I think you really want to have three budgets. You want to have a budget for now. And then how does that look different if you if you had to cut back, scale back, and you, you know, no longer had a job or you no longer wanted to work at your job and you wanted to live off your investments, what would your budget look like for that minimum one? And then what would your budget look like if you were living your ideal lifestyle? So it's kind of like those three different things we've got there. So we want to look at all of those to find out what your numbers are. And then once you have your numbers, we understand what your expenses are for each one of those. Then I think, in my opinion, you want to know what investments you need to support you at each of those levels. So right now you can write out whatever investments you have, right? That's your current budget. But eventually you want to get to that point where you're at your minimum target monthly income retirement that kind of minimum you need. And then what investments do you think you would have at that point. You know how many rentals would you have, are they free and clear, you know how much money and cash flow are they producing, how much is property one producing how much is property two producing how much is property three producing, how much is property seven producing, you know, however many you have, how much money do you have invested in stocks or bonds. What's the allocation mix? You know, do you have fifty percent stocks, fifty percent bonds? What percentage do you have in each? And then, what's your safe withdrawal rate number for that? How much money do you think you'll get for Social Security, and when does that start? How much money are you getting from your um, annuities, or how much money do you have for a pension? You know, not everyone has a pension, but how much money are you getting from each of those different sources, so that you can see it, when I am at my minimum target monthly income in retirement, when I'm at that kind of lean fire number, what does my expense budget my 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 budget of expenses look like and then what do my assets look like that will support me there then once you have that and you do the same thing for ideal right you go look at whatever your ideal one is you say what assets would i have for each one of those but once you get to that point you know okay i think when i get to my minimum target monthly income i'm going to have three free and clear properties and $500,000 in stocks and bonds in whatever split I've got, you know, 80-20 with 80% being in stocks or whatever makes sense for you at times your safe return rate. I'm going to have a little bit coming from Social Security, but that's not going to start until I'm age whatever it is, 65. And then I don't have any annuities and I don't have any pension. You know, that's a pr- probably pretty common sort of setup. You've got some real estate, you got some money invested in stocks and bonds, and then you've got, you know, nothing in uh, maybe a little in social security from your job, but probably not a pension, probably not any annuities, or maybe a, a different. So you go look at whatever you would need for that. And then you say, okay, where am I short? You know, right now I've got two rental properties, or I've got six but their cash flow is really poor. You know, it's 100 or 200 dollars a month when I really need to have 3,000 dollars a month produced by these things. So I need to get to the point where I've got six now, but I need three and free and clear. And so the plan will be: which ones are you keeping, or are you going to sell all six and buy three new ones? You need to know like which ones are the ones that I'm going to pay off, and which ones am I using as sort of like rocket boosters to get me to the point where I could take the money, the proceeds from the ones that I've gained some equity in because the property value has gone up and I paid down the loan. I'm going to take that, pay all the expenses on selling it, take that money and pay off the ones that I have there in order to get to the point where it's my minimum target monthly income or my ideal. So really what you're looking to do is you're looking to determine what's your budget now, what's your budget when you're at that minimum target monthly income or lean fire, What's that budget when you're at your ideal target monthly income and retirement or fat fire? And what are the assets? What's the financial independence assets distribution, the allocation you have for each of those levels? What is it right now? What will it be when you're at that minimum? And what will it be when you're at that ideal? And you want to plan for that. Then the question to ask is, does the property I'm looking to buy right now move me toward that goal? If you're at you know, you're working toward your minimum. Does it get me to my, does it get me closer to that minimum target monthly income retirement? Is the property I'm buying one that I'm going to use as a rocket booster to pay off other properties? Cause I'm not going to keep this to be free and clear. Or is this one of the ones that I want to ultimately pay off and keep long-term? You know, it's, it's kind of, what are you thinking with that property? What is it going to be for you? So that's what you want to be thinking about. And you want to do the same for ideal. Okay. And to help you, I've got a ultimate financial independence, retire early budget. And it really is three budgets in one. It's got your current list of all your expenses, your minimum, that's your minimum target monthly income, your ideal. And then at the end, it will allow you to put in kind of your current annuity, social security, pensions, and net rental property cash flow. And it will tell you how much you need in stocks and bonds at whatever safe withdrawal rate you put in, in order to make up the difference. In some cases, it's zero because you're already there, right? And then it will do the same for your current, your minimum, and your ideal. Um, And I probably will do a whole separate video walking you through how to use this budget. But your homework is to do the budget because you want to know, where am I now? what's my minimum what's my ideal and then does buying this new property move me toward that goal cuz one of the worst things we could do maybe it's not the worst thing we do but it's up there one of the worst things we could do is we could buy a property that doesn't actually move us toward our goal you know it maybe it's a property that cash flows but maybe we don't need cash flow right now maybe what we really need to do is be paying off this other property. And maybe we shouldn't be focusing just in on cash flow if we can get an overall return higher if we look at all of the other aspects and not just focus on cash flow. Just as an example, imagine you're in a market where you have really good cash flow. Let's call it $200 a month on a reasonable down payment. But you could go invest in a different property where, and, and, and that market where you have $200 a month in cash flow. Does not appreciate. It's a market that historically has seen very low or no appreciation. You only are getting cash flow on that property and some maybe debt pay down and some depreciation, but you're not really getting appreciation at all. The tendency of property values go up. Okay. So you're not really seeing that. Or you can go to another market where maybe that has break even cash flow or $50 a month positive cash flow, something that's much smaller, but the overall return is much greater because you're seeing appreciation. Maybe you're able to even buy it at a discount. And capture 10, 20, $30,000 or whatever it is that you're able to buy at a big discount. And that could make up for a lot of positive cash flow, especially if you have a really short time horizon. Okay. So we're trying to, I'm just having you start to think about this as we go. And if you need coaching and help on this, that's what we're here for. That's why it's a coaching program and not just a class, of course, right? So if you need help with that, that's what we're going to be discussing and the things if you need help with it. So the idea though is to look at your property and decide does this move me toward financial independence? my specific financial independence your definition um or does it not and so that's what we're thinking about and we'll we'll, we'll have to do another class and go over this budget and stuff okay so this is a uh, a visual from uh, financial independence retire early belgium and i I like it. So I'm just going to share it with you because it's, it's a pretty good visual of what's going on here. So they really have you showing you like what's going on today and over time what's happening here. And they have the, the steps numbered one through, I guess, six here. And I'll just walk you through. So right now it shows you how much income you have coming in from your work. That's this blue bar. And your income exceeds your expenses. So your expenses are this kind of like yellow bar here. And what they want you to do in step one is reduce your expenses. And they want you to reduce your expenses so that you can increase your savings rate. Okay, so step one is reduce your expenses to increase this difference between how much you're bringing in, and what your expenses are on it. And if you do that, then your expenses go down here, and the amount you can save actually increases. Step number two is they want you to save for emergencies. So they want you to put some money aside to save for emergencies here. So they go ahead and they say save for emergencies here. And then number three is they want you to focus on increasing your income. So step one, reduce expenses. Step two, save for some emergencies. Step three, they want you to increase your income so that the amount you're saving jumps up again. Then you take the amount of money that you've got from increasing your income and reducing your expenses, the larger amount that you're able to set aside, and you invest that efficiently. That's step four, okay? So they're telling you invest that. Step five is once you reach 25 times your annual expenses, then you are financially independent. And that's based on safe withdrawal rate. That's a 4% safe withdrawal rate. This 4% is really 25 times your expenses. So, um, you know, if your expenses are, you know, $20,000 a year, then you only need to say, if my math is right, what is that, 800,000? 800, 800, um, if you have a million dollars, that's $40,000 a year, okay? So, you know, once you kind of reach your expenses there, 40,000 times 25, um, that's going to be a million dollars. Okay, so that's kind of what you need to do in order to hit that number. If you're financially independent once you reach that, then you can live from your investment returns. There's no need to work anymore because their portfolio income now exceeds or matches the amount of expenses you have there. Okay, so that's what it's showing you visually, which I think is a good visual. Now realize. You know, some of this stuff we might do with real estate, right? We may not be investing efficiently in stocks or something like that. Um, And the 25 times, because we're not using the safe withdrawal rate, the numbers are going to be different. So we got to take into account the net cash flow on all of our rental properties after all expenses, plus any money we have invested times that safe withdrawal rate, plus all three other sources of those passive income, you know, the uh, Social Security, the annuities, and the pension. And then the combination of all of those combined, if those exceed your expenses, Then you're financially independent, according to my definition. Okay. All right. So we've talked about this idea, but I'll I'll go over this slide just to make sure I didn't miss anything. So, does buying this property, the one you're considering buying as part of the coaching program, move you closer to financial independence? Remember, what is financial independence mathematically for you? It's how much are you going to have in passive income, social security, pensions, annuities? You want to know that number. How much are you going to have in cash flow from your rental properties? You want to know how many properties you have. Are they free and clear? What approximately are the cash flows going to be at that point? You want to do your deal analysis and look out you know, two, three, four years and see where you think you're going to be at that minimum number. Add them all up. Make sure double check it. Or you could use the real estate financial planner software to do that modeling. So you add up the passive income, so security pensions, the cash flow from rental properties, and any of those invested assets times your safe withdrawal rate. You sum all of those up, and you find out exactly what the distribution of your assets are when you are financially independent. To find out if buying this property moves you closer to fulfilling that particular vision of your future, you need to have the vision of your future. Then you need to actually make it real by doing things today that will be there for you. Sometimes that means buying a property that has great cash flow so that you can keep it long-term. Sometimes that means buying a property that has really good overall return so that you can hold on to it for a year or two or three or four or five, then sell it and do payoff properties or invest in other assets or buy annuities or um, you know sell off all your portfolio and reinvest it into one big you know multifamily property or whatever your goal is to kind of be at for that. Okay, so know your outcome and your target. So you know if taking the action in front of you moves you closer or farther away from the target. But if you don't have the target, if you don't, if you aren't clear on what it looks like for you, what your expenses will be when you're at your minimum or you're at your ideal and what your asset allocation, how many properties you have and what they're paid off or not and other invested assets, all that other stuff, then you won't know if this is moving you toward your goal or not. And then the question to ask yourself, will buying this property move you closer Or farther away? And I got a typo. Or farther away. Okay. Resuming. Okay. And if it's going to be farther away, should you wait? Should you wait for a better deal? And I've... I'll do this analysis again. I need to, I'll do another special module probably once I get through the core 20 modules where I show you what the impact of waiting is. And I'll do the extreme waiting. I'll do the waiting of you save up money and buy properties all cash. Okay. And we'll show you what the penalty is for waiting. For most of you, it's not as bad as you think. And so, waiting is not a bad thing to do. If it makes sense for you to kind of like save up a little bit more, then that's not the worst thing in the world. It doesn't penalize you as much as you might think. And we'll sh- I'll show you exact numbers on that. Okay. Uh, and rarely in life is something a straight line. Usually there's zinging and zagging. You may be acquiring more properties than you need with the expectation of you know, higher than stock market rates of return when you're investing in these properties because you're actively managing them. And then you're able to eventually sell some of those properties off and pay off others or convert the proceeds to investing something other than real estate like stocks or bonds or whatever else you're investing in or annuities and then live off the safe withdrawal rate or the annuities or whatever else you're investing in. So a lot of times it's not straight line where you're buying a property and you're immediately paying that thing off. In fact, we'll do math and I'll show you which one's faster and safer because we'll look at the measures of risk as well in the coaching. So we'll look at and say, look, if you do it this way, you're getting this return by paying off your debt which is usually the return, the return you're getting is the interest rate on your mortgage, which when you have a 7% mortgage, isn't probably the worst thing in the world to pay off. But if you've got a 3% or 4% mortgage, maybe that's not the one you want to pay off. If you can invest in something else and get higher than a 3% or 4% return, especially if it's a a very solid, very likely return, okay? So your intentions, your desires, and and your plan can and probably will change over time. So we're, we're taking a snapshot today of your best guess as to what you think it'll be when you get to your minimum. But a year from now, when you have more numbers, you have, you have better numbers, you're like, okay, well, now my properties went up a lot faster than I thought. I got a lot more equity than I thought. And maybe my cash flow is better than I thought or worse than I thought. You know, do I need to adjust my plan? Do I want to have more free and clear properties or less free and clear properties? Or maybe my expenses increased a lot faster than what I thought inflation was going to be. So all of these things. Can and probably will change. So, your plan is not set in stone. There's no perfect plan, but planning is helpful. It gives us something to aim for so that we're likely to move toward that, even if we have to adjust a little bit later. Okay. So, I think a lot of real estate investors have cash flow as their goal. They're really focused in on cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. That's the only return I'm looking at because. Historically, And probably until you've seen my definition of what financial independence is and better understood that, and you'll understand a lot better as we do more examples and stuff, but most of them are focusing on that because they have only think about, you know, the positive cash flow part of the return they have on that kind of like triangle, the star, rather. So they look at it and they're like, hey, look, I'm getting this cash flow part of it. That's the only one I'm focused on. So I really need to focus on positive cash flow when I'm buying these properties. But realize that's not the only solution. Sometimes we want to take a property that we're buying that's going to give us a really good chunk of money that we could then use to pay off another property or we could use to put invest in stocks or bonds or whatever it is and then live off that safe withdrawal rate or use it as a down payment to buy an even bigger property or something like that. So a lot of investors are focused on that cash flow when that's only one of the ways to get there, and sometimes it is the, it's the hardest way to get there. And we'll we'll look at a lot of examples as we dig into this and, and during the coaching stuff together. But that's really the thinking. Okay, so cash flow isn't everything. Passive income, Social Security, pensions, annuities, the net cash flow from rentals, and then that yearly safe withdrawal rate are all three or five, depending if you think of the passive income as three different things or you think of it as one. But they're all different ways to get you to financial independence. So it doesn't have to be cash flow. In fact, it doesn't. It sometimes it's better to not do cash flow. Um, cash flow is great. And if we can optimize for it, which we will spend a lot of time going and optimizing, but sometimes you want to make that trade off of, okay, I could get $200 a month positive cash flow, putting this amount down, or I could go ahead and buy this other property and I'm going to get a much higher overall return. And it's probably better to do that based on where I'm going with my plan for financial independence of wanting free and clear properties or wanting... Some properties that have great cash flow and then also having some assets outside of real estate. Okay. So we will go into ridiculous detail on how to improve cash flow. So just stick it out for now. But cash flow isn't the only reason to invest in real estate. Two significant examples come to mind. You may want to build up an asset base and then improve cash flow by converting to free and clear rental property. So if you if you ever read the old book by Robert Allen, it's called Creating Wealth. And in that model, he basically talked about buying, and it's been a long time since I've read the book, but I'll, I'll give you my, my memory version of the book. And of course, if it's different, then go, the book is the book, right? I mean, I, if I tell you the story slightly wrong, but I'll get the basic idea. I think what he told you to do is go buy two properties a year for 10 years. And you'd have 20 properties at the end of 10 years. And you could go take half of them at that point, 10 of the properties, sell them, Use the proceeds to pay off the other 10 that you kept, and they would then be free and clear, and you'd have great cash flow on those. Okay. So that was his model buy two properties a year for 10 years, 20 properties total, sell off half of them, pay off the 10 that you kept, and you'll be able to do that. So that could be a strategy. And in that strategy, having the short term cash flow isn't all that important. Okay. It can be important depending on what your goal is, but it wasn't all that important in that particular plan. Okay. So, you could then buy a bunch of properties and then naturally pay off properties with cash flow. Any extra cash flow you're getting, you're really using to pay down the debt on them to get them free and clear as fast as you can. Or you take the extra cash flow you've got on the properties and you invest it in something else, you know, stocks or bonds or whatever, let that grow at six, seven, eight, nine, 10%, whatever you're able to get in the stock market you know, that you feel comfortable with. And then you could take the proceeds from that and use that to pay off you know, three or four or 5% mortgages um, that you have saved up. And if you're getting a higher return on keeping the money invested in the stock market, then it's actually faster to keep the money invested in the stock market until you have enough to completely pay off the mortgage than to take the money, pay off the mortgage at three or four or five, 6%, when you could be earning six seven eight nine ten 10%, whatever it is that you're able to earn on the other investments that are not real estate. Okay, so some thoughts there. Or- you may want to grow your assets or real estate, then convert those assets to annuities or yearly safe, withdrawal rate on invested assets. We talked about that idea. You, you want to go and say, okay, I'm going to buy 10 properties over the next 10 years. So I'm going to move into each one, live there for a year as a nomad, and then you know put low down, you know 5% down, buy a property, convert that to a rental and repeat that process until I have 10 rentals that I put 5% down on each. And then at the end of that, I'm going to take all of them and I'm going to sell them off Take the big chunk of money that I have accumulated from the property values going up and the loans being paid down, and whatever little cash flow I had, if any, for, by doing that strategy, and take that big lump sum of money invested in the stock market and bonds, and live off that as a safe withdrawal rate, or take that big chunk of money and buy yourself annuities so that you have an insurance product that you have longevity with, and you're not going to run out of money by having, uh, you know, your money invested as annuity because that's for for your life, for the duration of your lifetime. Okay. All right. So. Let's now talk about why building up your assets and why the first $100,000 is the hardest to acquire. And then we're going to return to real estate for building up your asset base. So I'm going to kind of diverge for a second, talk about um, um, why, why the first $100,000 is the hardest. And uh, we'll go into detail on that. And then we'll return to real estate. So first hundred k is the hardest. So Charlie Munger, who is Warren Buffett's partner, um, There's a quote from Janet Lowe in uh, Damn Right Behind the Scenes with Berkshire Hathaway billionaire Charlie Munger. So here's the quote. Charlie Munger has said that accumulating the first $100,000 from a standing start with no seed money is the most difficult part of building wealth. So this is me commenting now. So he's basically telling you that first $100,000 that you take the time to acquire is the absolute most difficult part of building wealth. You got to do the first one. In a lot of cases, buying that first owner-occupant property with nothing down or 3% down or 3.5% down FHA or you know 5% down conventional loan, moving in there, living there for a year or two, and then converting that one to a rental when you finally saved up to buy the next property with nothing down again, You know, do a VA or USDA loan if you hadn't done one before, or saving up 3% down and doing your US, uh, your, uh, your conventional loan or doing three and a half percent down FHA to buy a single family home or a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex, and kind of repeating this process until you get to the point where you've now got a $100,000 in equity, you need to do whatever it takes in order to get there. That's what he's basically telling you. And he's talking about stocks, but I've converted it to real estate for you, okay? making the. I'm going to continue with the quote. Making the first million was the next big hurdle. So all the kind of math we're going to talk about here about earning your first 100K and then using that to kind of build up to a million, that applies when you get to a million and you're trying to grow to 2 million or 3 million or 4 million or 5 million or 10 million or whatever your number is there. Okay. So to continue with the quote, to do that, a person must consistently underspend his income. You need to be saving money, need to be saving money. And I'll continue with the quote, getting wealthy. He explains is like rolling a snowball. It helps to start on the top of a long Hill, start early and try to roll that snowball for a very long time. The longer you have where you're investing, and you've got this money working for you, the better off you're going to be, okay? So here's another quote from Charlie Munger. Same idea, though. The first 100000 is a bitch, but you got to do it. I don't care what you have to do. If it means walking everywhere and not eating anything that wasn't purchased with a coupon, find a way to get your hands on a $100,000. After that, you can ease off the gas a little bit, okay? So do whatever it takes in order to get that that kind of lump sum, that seed capital of hundred thousand dollars to be able to start from there. And then you can kind of grow it. So this is going to show you if you were investing $10,000 per year at 7% interest. And I assume that you added the $10,000 the last day of the year or the first day of the next year, if you want to even think about it that way. And so in year one, at the end of year one, you put $10,000 in. So you didn't earn any interest on the money in that first year. But then in year two, you earned $700, 7% on the $10,000 in interest, and you added another $10,000 at the end. Okay. So in year two, at the end, you have $20,700. In year three, you about $32,000 change. Year four, you have $44,000 change. Then $57,000 next year, $71,000, $86,000, till finally, 7.84 years. From starting, where you're saving 10000 a year, you've saved up your first 100000 That's assuming a 7% return. Now, real estate typically has slightly better returns than that. And so we'll talk about what the returns are for real estate in another class, and uh, we'll we'll go into some detail as to how you could speed that up, especially if you're buying some properties at discounts or whatever you're doing there. Uh, we'll talk about some of those strategies. But it took you 7.84 years with you saving $10,000 a year to get to that first hundred thousand dollars. So you might be a little bit discouraged, thinking to yourself, "Man, if it takes me 7.84 years to get to a hundred thousand, if I have to do that." 10 times in order to get to a million dollars, if I want to have a million dollars saved up for retirement, that's going to be like 78 years to get there. It doesn't work that way, though, because the first year is the hardest. It's the longest to do that. Saving the same $10,000 that you were saving in the first year, it only takes you 5.1 years to earn that next $100,000. So to go from $100,000 at the end of um, you know, 7.84 years, it only takes you 5.1 more years in order to get to the point where you have 200,000. That's 35% faster than the first one. So this speeds up. Then, in order to do the third 100,000 to get the 300,000 total, it only takes you 3.78 years for that third one. Then it only takes you 3.01 years for the next 100,000 to get to 400K. Then it only takes you 2.5 years in order to get to to get to 500,000. So it's getting progressively faster. You went from 7.84 years for the first 100K to 2.5 years in order to get that 400 to 500 growth. And you're doing, you're investing the same amount. You're investing $10,000 a year. But the rest of it is coming from the investment growing at 7% per year. Okay. In order to get to a million dollars, okay, it takes you, what is this total time here? you know, a little bit more than about 30 years or so. But what's interesting is it took you 7.84 years in order to f- and earn that, that first $100,000, but it only took you 6.37 years or a year and a half less approximately to earn the last 400000 So in the time it took you to earn the first 100000 in less time, it took you to earn the last 400000 on your way to a million. That should blow your mind, right? You're thinking to yourself, it took 7.84 years in order to earn that first 100K, but it only took me six, and, six years and change to earn 400000 toward the end because of compounding. Okay, so another way to think about this, it took you, it took you 25% of the entire time to get to a million dollars to earn the first $100,000. It took you about 75% of the time, 74.5, in order to earn the rest of the 900,000. Or the second 100,000 took you 16.6% of the time. It took you a little bit less than 60% of the time to earn seven, I'm sorry, $800,000, which is crazy. And that's why you need to do everything you can in order to get that first 100K which for a lot of folks, that's going to be buying an owner-occupant property with a low down payment, like 3% down conventional or 0% down VA or USDA. If you're a veteran, or if you're willing to live in a rural area outside of your town and drive, commute in, put in whatever it takes in order to do that. It means commuting to work for a year in order to be able to buy a USDA property with nothing down. And then you're eventually able to rent that property out and move it to another property. That would be worthwhile, okay? Um, Or, you know, put 5% down conventional property. If you've got that, or three and a half percent down, and buy a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex, or buy a single family home with three and a half percent down, you could do that with the three and a half percent down loan program. We're going to get into financing here in next class, or, or you just go ahead and buy, you know, traditional twenty percent down payments. If you've got those fifteen percent down payment, if you're willing to do PMI, twenty five percent down, if you want to improve your interest rate, which we'll talk about all these strategies when we get the financing. Okay, all right. So that was all using seven percent return on your money. But leveraged real estate's probably not 7% per year. Now, it could be less, but it's usually higher than 7% when you account for all of the different areas of return, which we're going to talk about in the return quadrants uh, module. You have appreciation, the tendency for property values to go up over time. You've got that cash flow number, which is your net of all your expenses on your property, any income you've got coming in, including rent, minus vacancy, taxes, insurance, maintenance, management, all that stuff. And in some cases, that will be negative. But the overall return might still be positive because appreciation and the other returns are still big enough that they overcome the negative cash flow. Um, You have debt pay down is another area of return. So the amount of money you're earning by paying down how much you owe in the loan each month, if you've got an amortizing loan which we're going to go over all this detail in the modules, but it's kind of a preview. And then depreciation, the tax benefits of owning the rental property. When you take into account all those returns, plus the return from reserves, which we didn't really talk about here, then you'll be able to see that that's probably greater than 7% overall, especially if you're leveraged. Okay. And especially if you acquire an owner-occupant property, one you're going to move into with little or nothing down. You put very little down, the returns get crazy because the return is a small number. If the return is large on the small amount that you put down, with 0% down or 3% down or 3.5% down, the returns just get out of whack, crazy good. Um, and maybe even convert it to a rental after living in it for a year using the nomad strategy, which is nomad strategy is that buying a property as an owner-occupant living there for at least a year, it's a requirement of the lender that you live there for a year. And then after the year, you can convert it to a rental and you have very little money left in the deal. So if you imagine for a second that you had saved up 20% down to buy a rental property, you technically could buy probably four properties with that if you put 5% down on each over four years. So instead of buying one property with 20% down, you could buy four 5% down properties, move in, live there for a year. At the end of the year, move out, convert that one to a rental, buy another one 5% down, live there for a year, convert, then move out after a year, convert that one to a rental. Now you got two rentals, move into the third one, 5% down. And repeat the process until you get as many rentals as you want, continuing to put that 5% down, okay? That's really the nomad strategy, which we talk about when we talk about strategies, which I believe is the next module. Okay, property life cycle. And and, uh, this relates back to what you're gonna do with the property, right? So let's talk about this. So for the property you're considering buying, right? This is a coaching program about you buying a property in the next 90 days, the prices are high, interest rates are high, and rents are light. So what are you planning? What's your proposed property lifestyle, life, life cycle for the property? You're going to buy it, then do what? That's the question, right? You're going to buy it, then do what? Well, here are a couple options. It may not be all inclusive, but these are some of the big, pretty more common options you have. You could buy it, then you could sell it immediately. For example, let's say you want to flip a property to fund reinvestment or to pay off other properties. So you're like, look, I I don't have a lot to put down, but I do have some money and I can go find a property that I could buy at a discount, put a little bit of sweat equity into it, fix it up, resell it, walk away with the down payment I had back plus some profit on that, 10, 20, $30,000, whatever your number is in your marketplace that you're able to do for these flips. Then you take that money and you go and you reinvest it into something that you ultimately want to do. So you could buy this property with the intention of flipping it to then reinvest or maybe you're doing flips in order to pay off properties that you already own to get you to financial independence. You, you go look at your numbers, your budget. You say, look, I need three free and clear properties in order to be financially dependent. And that's what I would like it to look like. I want free and clear properties with great cash flow. So now you're like, okay, well, if I'm going to go buy another property, maybe I buy a property that I'm going to make 10, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 by flipping it and use that money to pay off the properties you already own. So that could be what you do. Or maybe what you do is you flip properties, you keep the money that you made in profit to use on your next flip. So you have to borrow less money if you really want to. um, In order to do the flips, use some of your own money to be your source of funding for the flips. And then you kind of take the profits out again. And then eventually you have enough where you can pay off the entire mortgage in full. And then you do that in order to be financially independent. So you could look at it that way. So- What's the proposed life cycle of the property you're buying now? Are you going to buy it, then sell it immediately? That's one option. Are you going to buy it now, then you're going to sell it within five years? And you're going to maybe do the same thing. You're going to fund either reinvestment by use as down payments for additional purchases or maybe stocks or bonds, whatever you're going to do, or pay off other properties with it. And what are you going to reinvest in? We talked about this. Stocks, bonds. Leverage up with real estate, you know, use it to put another down payment and acquire additional properties with it. Maybe you want to deleverage real estate, maybe you want to buy free and clear properties or do lower loan to value. You're like, hey, look, I can't. I'm having a hard time making properties cash flow, even with all the strategies we're talking about. Maybe it makes sense for me to, you know, buy a property, sell it within five years, and then put 25% down as I acquire properties to get better cash flow because I need that for whatever my financial independence goals are and my timeline. That's an option for you. Okay. Uh, or if you're going to sell within, two, and within five years, a lot of times we were doing that for the, if you live in a property two out of the last five years, any gains you had on that property are zero. Capital gains you have on that property are zero, um, up to some limits. There's some limitations on that, okay? Or maybe you're doing lease options where you're buying properties and you're immediately putting a tenant buyer in the property and they've got a year or two or three in order to be able to buy the property from you at a pre-agreed upon price. And so maybe the strategy is you're buying these properties to get your profit out to then reinvest in other things. We'll talk about this strategy uh, more in the future too. So another proposed property life cycle might be you buy it, then you sell to either optimize or achieve financial independence. So you buy it, and then at some point in the future, five years from now, six years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, you sell all the properties that are extra that you can use the proceeds from to pay off the properties you're going to keep and have free and clear properties. So you sell when you can convert real estate into paid off free and clear properties, or maybe you get to the point where you're like acquired a bunch of properties and 16 years in the future, you have enough equity in your properties such that after all the expenses of sale, You can sell all of them, and whatever you net after real estate commissions, closing costs, capital gains taxes, and depreciation recapture taxes, all the taxes on that, you can take the proceeds, and then you can invest that in stocks, bonds, at a safe withdrawal rate, you can eliminate all of the active headaches of having to manage properties, because might be more work for you to manage properties, even if it's a better return. And you're like, look, in retirement, I really want to be completely done. I want to unplug, and I just want to put my money in stocks, bonds, or annuities, or whatever I can do. And you're going to actually sell all your real estate and convert it to there. So you do that calculation to find out when selling them all leads to that. Okay. Um, or maybe you sell to de-risk when you reach financial independence. So you're like, look, I don't, I don't want to have this Additional leverage risk of having real estate, so I can go ahead and sell and de risk some when you hit financial expense. Or maybe your proposed life cycle for this particular property, your proposed property life cycle is you're going to buy it and you're going to keep it forever. You pay off the loan naturally over whatever the amortization period is 30 year loan, you pay it off over there, and then you keep it for cash flow. Or you're going to keep it forever, you're going to invest in something else temporarily. So any proceeds you have from cash flow on this property, you're going to invest in stocks or whatever it is. And then once you have enough. From investing in stocks, you're going to then pay off the loan as a lump sum. You know, that something else might be stocks, bonds, whatever it is you're doing. And maybe you want to focus on the lowest mortgage balance first, or maybe you want to focus on the highest interest rate first. It's really up to you. And we could talk about which one is faster and how to optimize that and how that affects risk when we talk about some measures of risk later on and some strategies there. Or maybe you want to pay off the loan faster with cash flow as you go. You know, that's not my favorite, and we'll talk about it why uh, when we talk about risk and measuring risk and things of that nature, but some people would rather take, you know, I've got two hundred dollars extra in cash flow a month. I'm going to take that and I'm going to pay down my mortgage on that, so I have a lower mortgage balance and I have a lot of equity. We could talk about that and which loan you pay off first. If you decide to, if you've got several properties, are so you just taking the two hundred you get on that property and paying off on that loan, or are you taking all of the extra cash flow and dumping it onto one particular loan, whether that's the lowest balance one or the highest interest rate one? We could talk about all those different strategies in detail but this is what you could do with the proposed life cycle of the property you're considering buying. Or maybe you keep it forever and then eventually you do a rate and term refinance. So let's say you've, you, when you bought it, you had a 7% interest rate and now interest rates are back down to 5% or 4%. You can do a refinance where you actually change the interest rate from seven to five or four, whatever it is right then. And then you get improved cash flow on that property. Or maybe the interest rate's the same but you've paid down enough of the loan that if you pushed it out and made it a 30-year loan again, maybe you have 10 years left on the loan, but if you push it out and make it a 30-year loan at this point, that will also lower your payment. So you can lower your payment even if the interest rate doesn't go down later. And we can talk about that too. Okay, And that would improve cash flow. So you can think to yourself, okay. You know, 11 years in the future or five years in the future or three years in the future, when I'm getting closer to be fi- financially independent, there are things we can do to manipulate, to kind of optimize our portfolio in order to push us over the edge of achieving financial independence. Maybe when, if you just took a snapshot of where we were at that time without doing some action, it would not be financially independent. Or maybe you decide I'm going to buy the property now. I'm going to keep it forever, but I'm going to do a cash out refinance. So maybe you get to the point where you paid off the property. And one of the strategies you have is you're going to take one property that's free and clear and you're going to do a 75% cash out refinance where you get cash, you borrow money from that property and you live off the cash. Okay, so you live off of the, whatever it is, $300,000 that you pull out for the property when you do a, a cash out refinance and you consume that money. Until you go through it all, and then you go and you find your next free and clear property, and you pull out, you know, three hundred fifty thousand dollars on that one at the time, and you consume that, or maybe you pull out three hundred thousand dollars and you use that to put a down payment, you know, fifty percent down or whatever it is you're going to do on a property, so that your overall net cash flow is improved. Okay, and we'll talk about those strategies as well. But that's sort of like the thinking of what are you going to do with this property? You're going to buy it, sell it immediately, sell it within five years sell it eventually to optimize or achieve financial independence with my other properties or other portfolio stuff or you're going to keep it forever and do some of those options. So those are what you're thinking about. So why does this lifestyle life cycle thing matter? Well, if you plan to ultimately sell the property, then the overall return, not just cash flow, but the overall return might matter more than just cash flow. I gave you this example before where if you're in a market you can get $200 a month in cash flow but the property's not going to appreciate Maybe you should not invest in that property if buying a property where the overall return is better is going to better serve you and get you to financial independence faster. And we'll discuss this in detail when we get to the module on return quadrants. But especially, this is especially true if you have a very long horizon to achieving financial independence when the overall return matters more than the short-term cash flow. So we'll talk about that in detail too. If you plan to keep the property, you're not going to sell it, then optimizing for cash flow might be the primary goal. You might be looking for a property that has really good cap rate, because cap rate' ultimately going to be what the cash flow on the property is going to be once the property is paid off. okay? And this is especially true if you're getting closer to financial independence. If you've got a really short time horizon, then the importance of this cash flow is probably more important in a lot of cases, not every case, but more important in most cases when you do that. OK. So that's all I got for you on your financial independence. I wanted to give you kind of a structure as to what financial independence means, some different ways of thinking about that, what the kind of stages and phases are as we kind of move toward those, a budget for you to do for homework to kind of figure out what it means mathematically specifically for you, both what you have now, and what your expenses and income are now, what you will have when you're at your minimum target monthly income, what you have when you're at your ideal And then we kind of talked about some of this uh, property life cycle stuff and uh, kind of things you can think about related to that. And we talked about uh, why 100K is um, really hard to do, but it's really important for you to do it to get that asset base growing so that you can then do things with your assets and manipulate them over time um, and kind of optimize your portfolio. All right. So that's all I got. Check out the next module. I think we're going to do real estate investing strategies next. And uh, we'll go over a whole bunch of different strategies and talk about like what you're planning to do. And then we'll tie it back to, does it move you toward being closer to your goal of financial independence? And as we go through this, we'll start optimizing for cash flow. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Casper is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Casper that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast.